Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Professor at Edith Cowan University, Sophia Nymphius. Thanks for tuning in to episode 158 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I'm delighted to line up a part two, or was delighted to line up a part two with Sophia Nymphius. So Sophia came on the podcast in the early days on episode 35, and that was 18th of May 2015, so nearly two and a half years ago. So it was great to get her on for a part two and what I decided to do was just pose the same questions as I did two and a half years ago and then just see what her updated thoughts and uh, experiences have been since then on them specific subjects. So them specific subjects were, given Sophia's expertise in the area, uh, testing for agility, uh, how we can detect physical qualities uh, from a change direction test. Uh, developing agility in youth athletes and then looking at training uh, and coaching the female athlete which I definitely put my foot in so apologies to uh, Sophia for that but anyone that knows me is uh, that's not something that is uncommon for me unfortunately but yeah anything any sorry anyone that has an interest in uh, agility and change direction this is definitely an episode where you'll get tons out of and anyone that's heard Sophia speak before knows how articulate she is uh, and what a great speaker she is so I really thank her for uh, giving up her time to come on the podcast for a second time. And so we know on sport like you can make the right decision but if you then can't physically perform it it was actually the wrong decision for you. It's the right decision within the context of, of decision making but it was the wrong context within the part that I'm I'm probably primarily responsible for, which is training the physical capacity. So this episode is sponsored by Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track. So if you are interested in any of the three products that Vald are offering, obviously Nordboard being the, uh, the most widely known, get over to their website at valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valveperformance. Also sponsoring the podcast is Forstex. So Forstex is a hardware and software force plate solution. And everyone I seem to get on the podcast has Forstex. It's absolutely everywhere. So if you are interested in getting to know more about Forstex, I actually did a podcast with each of the co-owners of the podcast of the um, of Forstex, uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen and uh, Phil Graham Smith. So definitely have a little listen to each of them. Uh, each of podcasts uh, to learn more about force decks, but more importantly, um, jump monitoring um, as a tool. So yeah, massive thanks to them guys for sponsoring uh, episode 158. So I'll get over to the podcast with Sophia. If you are interested in um, part one with Sophia, uh, episode 38. So strengthofscience.com forward slash 38. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have a long-awaited part two with Sophia Nymphius. So welcome for a part two, Sophia. Thanks a lot, Rob. It's good to be back. Um, always interesting. 
Nice. It was really good to have you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a, a brief background uh, on yourself, uh, your education and what you're currently doing. Yep, so I'm currently an associate professor at Edith Cowan University, um, and I was formerly a sports science manager at Surfing Australia, currently high performance manager at Softball Western Australia, and assisting um, with uh, specific projects at Softball Australia, so that's that's where I am now. Um, I did my PhD at Edith Cowan University with um, a collaboration with West Australian Institute of Sport and Softball at that time. Previously, master's degree at Appalachian State. I was a strength coach at University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, and I did my bachelor's at Barton College, where I also played softball and basketball as an NCAA athlete. Nice. So, with softball, is it, what's the what are you doing now? Volleyball or softball? Did you say softball? Softball now. Softball. Back back into so back the original the sport. So yeah. Back back to the roots. I am. Yeah, it's good. Good. Um, so I just wanted to touch on, uh, I had a little look back on my emails and saw it was actually April, 2015 when we spoke. So over, well over two years ago, two and a half years ago. And just to cover some of the points and see how your kind of thoughts and experiences had updated since then. So the first one that we, we chatted about back in 2015 was, was testing for legit for agility, which I know has, um, has probably had a lot of info before then, a lot of info since, but it just to get good to get your updated thoughts on your views for testing of agility. Yeah, probably since um, we spoke last, actually a great review article um, came out in uh, Sports Medicine on um, testing agility. And, and after that, we've actually just um, published a paper in um, Strength Conditioning Journal, just updating, kind of testing in general. And, and really questioning what we've been doing um, in the time since then. And, um, you know, I think a lot of really good things are coming out. Um, just uh, really taking a step back and reevaluating what ag agility is. And, um, you know, I think within that, people are, of course, it's easier to be critical after you know what um, – after you're standing on the uh, steps of people that have done it for the first time. But what, what's probably getting highlighted, um, and even then we had just published a research paper um, looking at offensive versus defensive agility and whether there was a difference in that. And um, I think more people are looking to that um, and, and comparing and contrasting whether there's differences in perceptual cognitive capacity when, when in a defensive versus an offensive scenario. The other thing that has definitely moved forward is um, as of 2015, probably, and actually even now, um, but just maybe changing, probably 95% of the tests of agility, which um, I think everyone's good, that agility includes that um, response to a stimulus component. Probably 95% of the agility tests were done more in a Y, um, so only a 45-degree um, quote-unquote cut, more of a slight. Um, and we, we're pretty cognizant now throughout a range of sports, court and field, that the, um, the range of different types of changes of direction that occur is much broader than that initial kind of 45 degree that we based a lot of things on. But you have to start somewhere. And those things set the foundation. But what people are doing now is broadening the depth or, or we'll say the, um, 
the difficulty of those cuts, so moving it out from a 45 to, to cuts that really require aggressive braking. And um, we've even got a master's student right now um, looking at the defensive nature where you're actually braking and you're cutting backwards. So more of a 135 degree cut and not even that, um, that token 180 degree cut that I, I've actually used for years and years um, for a traditional change of direction test, but looking at that, that cut back, which is a really common maneuver where you're, you're putting yourself in a position to cut off um, someone moving towards you as an as a offender as an offensive person and you as a defender using that forward aggressive braking and then cutting back. Now some people have looked at that generally um, from a change of direction perspective, so pre-planned, but now we're, we're expanding to look at whether there's, there's differences in the processing that occurs and one's ability to perceive and then ultimately have a motor response to that. Um, I think that'll really change our perspective and um, open up and acknowledge that maybe those that perform well in offensive agility tasks may or may not perform equally well in defensive agility tasks. The reason I can say that with relative confidence is that where we've started and why I've probably been quiet for a little while is um, taking a step back and actually piloting some of this with athletes um, from a training perspective as well as doing some analysis of games and um, comparing and contrasting um, the athletes that perform well in 1v1 scenarios um, when they are going offensively versus how they perform in 1v1 scenarios defensively. And the reason I'm even narrowing it down to 1v1, so one, one versus one um, scenario or breakdown in the game, is that's actually the only thing we've been evaluating in the research so far. We haven't um, really developed a agility test where you go beyond the one versus one, so just the perception reaction part of the equation. And when you look at the definition of agility and even some of the original um, discussions that Jeremy Shepard had back in 2006 where you have the anticipation, you have um, scanning, those things don't actually get to be utilized in a uh, majority of the agility tests, if not all of the agility tests now. It is very limited. Um, to that one versus one scenario. So before we move on and, and start creating too many more tests, I think people are taking that much needed step back and, and making sure that the tests that we have um, created, even those Y tests, are actually valid within a um, context of how people perform in the game. And so, like I said, I've got a master's student working on that right now um, uh, with Fadi Maya and um, Shane Pickering is his name. And, um, and I think that'll really allow us to look to see if, if we actually have predictive capacity from those um, lab-based tests into actual field-based parameters. And that's probably where the biggest change for me is happening in agility, other than maybe the semantics of uh, terminology. So um, probably previously I always talked about the perceptual cognitive side, which is, of course, our ability to perceive and understand something. And then we have the physical side. And um, I think now I'm probably using the term perceptual motor more often because I, I've been educated in this area by many people um, much more experienced than I am in motor behavior. And the perceptual motor is, is exactly what probably most of us intend to be measuring, and that's what one is able to perceive and do. And the reason that I bring that up is um, some interesting research that's um, – 
made me think about it. And I think innately as a strength coach, I always knew this, that, you know, people are really hot on the perceptual cognitive side right now. It is, it is imploding. So many fantastic researchers acting on, I can't even keep up with it. And, and I think we had this discussion last time about where this sits. And I know that, um, I sit under two hats and one's as a sports scientist and one's as a strength conditioning coach and whether the training of this, because contextually it has to be understood within, within the confines of the coach's plan, their defensive structure, their decision-making that they want the athletes to make within their overall, um, their goals of their uh, offensive and defensive structures. But um, the perceptual motor uh, kind of terminology came about when I, I actually read a paper um, by Bruce, Farrow, Rayner, and Mann. That's all of them on that paper. And it's called, um, but I can't pass that far, which is quite funny. The Influence <laughs> of Motor Skill on Decision-Making. And probably the take-home message for me from that paper, and now I'm transferring it over to what I think I know about agility and change of direction, is that they said that lesser motor skill did not constrain them from making the correct decision, despite their inability to consistently execute the decision. What that meant was that people could actually make the right decision, even if that decision was something they could not physically perform. And so we know in sport, like, you can make the right decision, but if you then can't physically perform it, it was actually the wrong decision for you. It's the right decision within the context of, of decision-making, but it was the wrong context within the part that I'm, I'm probably primarily responsible for, which is training the physical capacity. And so I took that and, and because I was really questioning whether, you know, how much of our physical capacity training is making a difference and then I agreed that it all makes a difference. And since they intimately interact, there's still room and scope for developing the basics of capacity and then intertwining it with one's perceptual cognitive. So they ultimately have what we want, which is pe perceptual motor expertise. So one thing, I, I'm probably dragging this down to my level here, but when it comes to, when it comes to testing, that includes a decision-making element and I'm just thinking of kind of my experiences how would I then go about creating a uh, a test which I'm able to standardize and have that decision-making uh component yeah so it's probably relevant to the sport I guess yeah there's probably three different um ways we go about that and um the three ways that we you can broadly split the tests up into three different um areas and um it's really clear in the literature you have those that have um tests against um a stimulus that isn't specific so like a light stimulus or noise stimulus then you have those that are to 2d stimuli like video and then you have those that are against 3D stimuli, and that would be like against an actual person, or if you had 3D videography, then, then that would be the case. But more more like someone just stepping to the side or making a pass in front of you. And um, the, the former two, 2D and 3D stimulus, are, is that which are most recommended um, from, from the literature review that I was mentioning before. Um, and the reason for that is the ecological validity of them. Um, the, the benefit of the 2D stimulus is that you film 
movement patterns. And then you get a large enough suite of those movement patterns that you can use them in the test. And that increases your reliability. The reliability isn't limited to the ability for your 3D performer, probably yourself as a coach, repeating the movement pattern with the same timing so that you know that the changes in the athlete's performance isn't a function of you, but it's a, it's a function of them. So with that said, I would stick to the 2D and 3D. And from a practical perspective, if you can use um, video as your stimulus, that's the best way to get the, the ecological validity at the same time as high reliability and, and um, convenience, really, from a practitioner standpoint instead of you being your own tester. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to um, the kind of change of direction um, test that I still kind of see been um the, the 505 or the the t-test that uh, i guess kind of the standards when it comes to kind of first year undergrad or, or even in professional professional environments what what value uh what value do they bring and are you still are you seeing a kind of a, a thought process within practitioners that is moving towards moving away from the the kind of traditional change direction test and towards in, including this um uh, decision-making element? Yeah, well, I guess that it depends. <laughs> I see a lot more people doing research and more people testing agility. I don't see as many people just removing change of direction tests. And the reason for that is probably because if we were all honest with ourselves, a majority of us still work with athletes where there's physical limitations and they can be readily exposed and monitored using very reliable, simple change of direction tests. Now, if you happen to work with a cohort of athletes where physical capacity never limits them, then sure, I suppose you can remove that. Um, But I'm pretty sure none of us have an entire cohort of a team where that is the case. Um, because remember that expectation is all relative to those that are around you. So maybe your uh, top performers are better than a lot of people, but they have to be better than those in which they, they play against. And so I think the mixture of the two is, is always probably the best case scenario. And an understanding of why you're testing, again, is probably the next thing. If you are testing to look at someone's capacity, then you you still use those standard change direction tests. If you're looking to see someone's ability to utilize their capacity and perceive and respond, so perceptual motor ability, then yeah, absolutely you need to be doing those agility tests. But off the agility test, you still have to split it up and look at whether what's limiting them. Is it the physical capacity or is it the movement? And realize that um, the complexity of an agility task adds a nuance to the physical that may change what you think about their physical capacity. And um, I wrote this in in um, a book chapter, I believe, or in an article, and it's a little bit like... Um, comparing jump testing. And no one gets um, so fed up with the counter movement jump because it's just so rudimentary that they eliminate it. Um, and they only do drop jumps because drop jumps would be more demanding. Um, 
there's a room in place for all of those because they give us different types of information. Well, I always relate the drop jump where you have kind of like the unknown contact with the ground because of that time period where you pre-activate right before you jump off the ground. But that's a little bit like an agility maneuver where you're, you're moving and then something occurs and you may have that sudden impact with the ground in response. So it's kind of that react and you have that sidestep or something to that nature. You want that pre-activation to occur. The better you are at perceiving that scenario and the better trained you are at pre-activity prior to foot plant, the better you perform. But at the same time, there'll be scenarios where you're moving through and you have a pre-planned movement or you actually have advanced scanning ability and you see a hole before everybody else and you are actually making that decision well before you do it because of your vast scanning ability, which then goes back to the parallel to quote-unquote counter-movement jump, where you know you're going to move, you know you're going to counter, you utilize your stretch-shortened cycle to move rapidly. That's more of that pre-planned or the advanced due to good scanning capacity knowledge of where you're going to go. And so all those scenarios happen. And so we don't cut one or the out or the other out because we think that one is more quote-unquote sport-specific. Because really, um, sport specific, if you wanted to do that, then you would just look at the game tape and you would evaluate the scenarios where agility is occurring. And then you would just decide if that athlete's actually performing well within it. Remember that the testing that we perform is to identify the gaps so that you can target your training program within the context of strength and conditioning to further improve that athlete down the line. So I think that's, that's where it's going is People are not just blanket testing pre-planned movements, just throwing in whatever tests they prefer, but they're having a sit down and a think about which test gives them the information that's most critical to the program that they're about to write. And so for each practitioner, that will be different. And maybe the test is different at different times in the season. It's less fear. Yep. Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, it just went a little bit quiet. Um, so just looking at uh, the change, change of direction test, I know we discussed this before, but I think it's still really, really relevant, is how do we dig deeper into these uh, change direction tests to actually figure out which physical quality is lacking um, rather than just taking the time, sticking it in a database and ticking a box that we've done, done our testing for the quarter or six-week period? Yeah, so um, we did mention this before, and I had, um, from a coaching standpoint, I always have to have one um, solution that could be done yesterday um, without any additional equipment. And so the first solution that we came up with was um, uh, looking at the deficit. So that was whatever change of direction test floats your fancy. I don't care what it is. But knowing the length of it and then having a sprint test that is of equal length. So, for example, if you do a 505, which this is one that we have um, published before, if you do a 505, that, that change of direction performance is based on you covering 10 meters of distance. So we look at the difference between your linear sprint over 10 meters and that 505 performance. We call that a change of direction deficit. Now, um, other people have started to um, flesh this out, and we've even done it myself. Um, 
just with some abstract work, which we're working on publishing now, where we've taken lots of simplified change of direction tests. So for instance, instead of doing a full t-test, we just do the uh, right-hand side of the t-test, which would be, for example, maybe we do a modified t where you go five meters forward, and then you shuffle for five meters to the right. And that's looking at your ability to transition between modes of movement, which is still a type of change of direction. You're still traveling 10 meters, and you might compare that to your linear time again, or you might have them run 90 degree cut and repeat run, same thing, the difference from your 10 meter time. I've seen people do it um, differently. We've just submitted a paper where we had a zigzag, a, a traditional zigzag test. That's what the coaches wanted. That's what they, they like. They see that movement pattern, and I, I'm not going to argue with that. But just to get more context, I then took that 20-meter distance test. That one's a little bit longer, and looked and compared to those athletes' 20-meter time. And that gave me an indication of how much time those athletes lost because they had to do those three changes of direction. If you know the zigzag test, it's four or five-meter distances with three um, approximately 100-degree cuts in between. And, um, and then that gives us a really good indicator of how well those athletes can succeed or perform those changes of direction without losing time, so to speak. That is, um, that's the first suggestion I have, and it's the simplest. Um, the next one that for coaches is simple and you can do yesterday is the qualitative assessment that goes along with those um, change direction tests. And I, I've talked about this previously as well, which is you can perform with identical times on both sides, but those two sides look vastly different. Sometimes that's just a, a nice adaptation to the physical qualities that you happen to have on your left or right side. But sometimes it can be a change in um, preferred movement pattern that is avoiding uh, range of motion or avoiding the use of a particular joint because you have a limitation that can leave you susceptible to potential injury or leave you susceptible to failure. And when I say failure, I mean lack of performance if you had to use that joint and or um, range of motion. So in the plan test, of course, you can choose that which you um, do best. But on the field, if you go through that same, say, 180 or 90 degree or 45 degree cut, but you're limited in what you have available because there's a defender near you or because um, of an implement that you're carrying or the room you have to maybe plant, you then are put in a new position that you may or may not be good at. And that is the only time it gets exposed. So I guess the third part that I do is, um, and this is not necessarily about testing, but this is more about, remember, we don't train to beat the test, but you train the athletes to be resilient despite what they do, not because of what they do. And tests are because of what they do, but games are success despite what they do. So for instance, this is where you're starting to think about the long-term development of the athlete, and they may perform that. One uh, 180 cut really well, but you then make them go through that 180 cut in as many different scenarios, ways, and and different maneuvers that 
you can get them to do it. And of course, you're going to do that not by saying, hey, you know, this time use your left leg more or this use, you know, your arms more, but you're just going to set the task and constraint. So that's maybe sometimes they're touching the ground. Sometimes they're touching something overhead. Sometimes they're carrying something that's loaded on one side. Sometimes you have an athlete standing next to them or on one side or or, or creating a scenario where they have to duck underneath something. And all you're doing is looking to see if the athlete can perform just as well despite the positions you put them in instead of because of the position they choose. And I think what that does is that just builds the robustness. And it's from a motor uh, behavior, it's from a motor behavior basis that a lot of people are talking about. And I don't think I need to go into great detail, but any coach understands that concept of Bernstein's repetition without repetition, that's gameplay. But from a strength and conditioning perspective, if we can have control of how we get those athletes to go through those ranges, then we're monitoring load, we're developing the athlete, and we're allowing them again to succeed despite those scenarios. And I guarantee when you do that, and then you still go back and test that athlete, but you open it back up to them, that they will still perform better even if you didn't train to beat that test. And in fact, you don't want to do that um, because then that, that's actually not benefiting you nor the athlete. So probably those three things are the most straightforward. One is to look at that change of direction deficit if you can. Two is to look at the qualitative. And three is to, while training, consider training everything but that test and using the tasks and constraints to do that. And, and then realizing that that's a function of um, building that athlete's, athlete's um, movement repertoire, so to speak, or movement solutions um, to that particular um, scenario that you're looking to improve. We're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Sophia. So in part two, we go into coaching the youth athlete and coaching the female athlete. But just before we get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So all the sponsors uh, that continue to support the podcast, really appreciate it. Otherwise, if they didn't exist um, or they weren't supporting the podcast, uh, it couldn't exist in its current form. So Fatigue Science is a sleep monitoring device, um, but them guys offer so much more than that. If you want to jump over to their website at Fatigue Science, you can have a little look into what they offer uh, and what differentiates them from something like a Fitbit um, and other kind of consumer products that are out there. So massive thanks to the guys at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with Sophia. Thanks for tuning in. Any feedback is is more than welcome um, and I'll speak to you soon. Just uh, touching on number two, the, the qualitative uh, analysis of, of the change direction test. For someone that's relatively new into strength and conditioning, maybe got a, a group of young athletes. <clears throat> so they've got a, a camera view from, from behind the, the test that's, that's going on, but they're looking at this video and, and getting kind of overwhelmed with a lot that's going on. How, what, what recommendations would you give for, for, to, for someone to actually be able to dial in and see what's and and kind of make sense of what's happening and where to look first and kind of technical models and that type of thing 
Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I would probably recommend is just try not to get distracted with the upper half. And we'll look at that later. Um, and break it down to the three joints that probably everyone could at least focus upon. And that'd be what's happening kind of at the hip. And you could combine the trunk with that, the hip, the trunk, then what's happening at the knee, and then what's happening at your ankle. Um, and consider and split the athletes because what I do know is independent of your, your novice nature of, of evaluating movement, we can all play the game of this doesn't look like that one (laughs) and pick maybe one to two to three athletes that, you know, just, they look mountains different when they move and pick those three athletes and, and put the videos together and, and playing them side to side or pick two and playing them side to side and literally look at those three joints. You look at, are they, are both of them controlling the trunk or, or, or leaking to the left or to the right at their hip? Um, do they mediate or push out the knee? Do they leave the knee really stiff as they go into breaking or do they absorb effectively? Um, and then finally, do you see a lot of movement through the ankle? Is the ankle stiff? Does the ankle go through excessive range of motion? Is the ankle aligned with the hip and knee when they extend out? And what's the ankle doing as far as being able to effectively um, break the movement? So if you have those two athletes, they compare and contrast, I guarantee you one of them prefers one movement pattern. They may be what we call really hip dominant. And another one may be more knee dominant, okay? And the reason I, I, I bring those things up isn't because um, it's, it's actually really supported in some more recent research. And I guess I'm just um, translating to the practitioners what I've seen. And then some really neat research that's coming out that's probably going to change how we, how we look at and evaluate and probably help some um, novice practitioners is that um, it was actually um, – uh, Franklin Miller, so Andy Franklin Miller, published a paper um, just this year, I believe, 2017, maybe officially came out in 2016, but fully in press, uh, in print in 2017. And they actually evaluated over 300 athletes, which is super rare using 3D kinematics. Now we're going somewhere. Now we're getting an idea. And the paper was more about, um, uh, I believe from memory, the the paper was more about looking at um, trying to find a relationship to growing pain. But I didn't look at this paper like that at all. I looked at it and I said, oh, finally, someone who has broken apart athletes into groups of movers. Because we all know we have these different types of movers. And I, I fear that everyone tries to make everyone look like this one particular golden child of a mover. And we don't do that. We just make people better and more robust within the context of the movement that that they tend to utilize. And what they found was uh, analyzing over these 300 athletes, they kind of split them up into these three groups. And and what I remember is that one, when they did, I believe it was about a 100, 100 degree cut, thereabouts, don't quote me, might have been 90, might have been 80. <laughs> but they did a, a relatively difficult cut maneuver. And uh, one group of athletes did way more, did a lot more work at the knee. Another one of the athletes group, they clustered them. They did way more work at the hip. And then the other one did a lot more work at the ankle. And, and because of probably that work at the ankle, they had greater uh, ground contact times. 
Now, no one, they didn't look at performance per se, but they were looking at injury, and they actually didn't find a relationship between the injury and these, these clustered groups. But nonetheless, it was the first paper I saw that acknowledged that people just move differently. And when we analyze it, the first thing we need to do is stop comparing apples to oranges to lemons. And I think that's what the first thing in qualitative assessment should be is go, okay, not making everybody look like this one mover, but I'm first going to group people by movers, and then I'm going to see within the context of how they prefer to move, what can I help them get better at? And or if you do want them all to just be really robust through all three joints, you classify them based on the joint you identify seem to be as horrible as it sounds, the weakest link. So do they have no trunk control? Do they just leak through the hip? Is their knee in a position that you're amazed they haven't already torn an ACL? Do you see so much instability through the ankle that it's worth sitting down and doing some isolation work through the ankle, checking if they can even do 15 calf raises of body weight, doing some of that basic assessment? And um, I think that simplification, just those three joints in itself, is all you need to do. Because that in itself will go a long way because you're not going to prescribe how they move, but you're just going to try to mediate and improve the joints so they have the opportunity to potentially move better. And then that takes you right back to what we were saying in that quote unquote part three, which is, all right, set the drills up so they are required to go through movements and patterns, even though they probably don't want to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Translating that to a, like a, an adolescent kind of youth athlete, does all that kind of still stay the same? Is there any specific considerations which you would have in your head when, when working with a, a younger population? It's, it's really just this sim it's just simpler. It's just a lot. It's a little bit less complex to find what they need to work on. Um, I think in the adolescent population, but to be honest, I try to just look at athletes as individuals, no matter what, and realize that a lot of people that are quote unquote elite, there's a, a joint or a movement that is way below elite capacity. <laughs> and they, 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 indeed, they succeed despite that, that, um, deficit. So, um, when we talk about adolescent athletes or amateur athletes, it's just that they have, um, probably a greater number of things that you can work on. And it's just organizing which one you're going to work on when and kind of holding your reins back and being grateful that you have so many different um, areas you can target and just trying to make a, a bit of a systematic plan and realizing you have nothing but time on your side. You don't need to improve every part of that athlete all at once, but you can kind of take an approach where you you look at, so let's go back to that qualitative example, and you say, you know, is it that they can or they can't, first of all? So if they have the physical capacity, but they're not doing it in the context of the skill, then I need to do more things around skill development and task and constraint, how to transfer that learning across. Is it that no matter how much I set tasks and constraints, that their physical capacity is so low, most of their time is going to be spent in our basic movement patterns, going back to fundamental movement skills, and just our typical loading paradigm. And that's probably where you'll spend more time with the youth, but not necessarily. Some of them relative to their body weight are really, they're, they're handling it really well. And so you can dive into what would cause, I guess, more advanced 
training. Um, but I don't see it as advanced or, or, or novice at all. I just see here's an area where you succeed. Here's an area where you have a greater improvement and you, and you target that. If you work with those adolescent or those lower level athletes, so to speak, you just have more to target. So you have a, a more sequential plan through the year. Mm-hmm. And just to create another pigeonhole, um, and that's and that's working with female athletes in this um, in these type of scenarios. And I I kind of cringe when I say that about the the pigeonholing. But is there um, is there any more specific considerations due to the um, kind of injury risk profiles of this type of um, this type of activity with with females? Yeah, it's okay. I I cringe too. <laughs> When people say that too. <laughs> and I think to myself, you know, I know what you mean. I just also know how it comes out, right? So, <laughs> um, and, and, and I see it because I, I, I now have um, a ton of female athletes under me. And, um, and to be honest, it's really just about, I honestly believe um, 99% of it is training age. Um, and whether they've had the same level of, uh, physical training that their male counterparts have had at the same level of expertise in the sport they play. So for example, if you have state level, um, state level athletes, male and female of the same sport, the, the chances are that those female athletes have been less exposed to organized strength and conditioning. Um, it's, it's just hasn't caught up from our, our standpoint. And, and we know that from the strength conditioning community, because I guarantee you a lot of us got our first, um, start with a women's team. And that's not because people were thinking, yeah, this person's really good because they have no experience. Let's put them with the team we care the most about. It is exactly what it sounds. It's, it's, we go, oh, well, we'll put them with the women's team because it doesn't matter so much. Um, and so that just highlights the, uh, the importance that the women's teams currently put on strength and conditioning. So with that said, I guess if you were going to generalize, there's just so much more that has to be done to undo some cringeworthy movement mechanics that you see in female athletes. And I don't know why that happens. And I could speculate for years but I believe that when you don't have the training history and the, um, the emphasis on technique, as well as the strength to back that up, you, you make some pretty cringeworthy movement patterns. And then the, all those people around you watch those movement patterns. And if you don't believe me, you should do this wrong. Walk behind <laughs> your parents and then realize that however your parents walk, you're walking right now. Okay. So if you think and you, (laughs) it's bad. I know I've done it and then I shake my head. Um, And if you think about our female athletes, they're surrounded by other female athletes all the time that may or may not have had the opportunity to have that training history to move more athletically. But we all know that they're capable because we see some of our female athletes that are phenomenal. The way they move you don't say, oh, that's a great female athlete. You say, wow, that was a great move. That was an excellent cut. What a fantastic kick. Great catch. Insert a million things here. 
And that's ultimately what we're going for for every single one of our athletes. It's just the nature of how women's sport has gone through the ages. And, and over time, it'll change. But I'm certain there's no, there's no coincidence that some of our female athletes that grow up playing on men's teams uh, when they're young or they have five brothers, that sometimes they just seem to move like you hope they would move. And then those that haven't had those opportunities, we probably spend more time corrective or we have to um, try to train them to, to move athletically while we're also trying to make them athletic. And that's from a strength and conditioning standpoint. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's because they're a female athlete, but I do think it's just based on their environment. Um, and so you will just observe, evaluate, determine what they need, independent of the gender they happen to be. But you're cognizant that maybe because of their gender, it may be more prevalent that you have to move, you have to work on movement mechanics as much as you have to work on everything else. And this again, this is not the the the, the classic cringy pigeonhole thing, but but terminology with female athletes is, and this is kind of going to the more kind of coaching, pure coaching side of things. Is there anything that is markedly different how you coach the girls as opposed to the guys? What you say, how you say it, and when you say it. Ooh, this is a loaded question too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Um, I think for the benefit of a lot of female and male athletes that I've worked with, we tend to overgeneralize. Um, okay. Yep. And maybe, maybe group group thought takes over. So if a generalization is present, that's because maybe, you know, there's a, quite a lot of people that attest to that generalization. And so if you have a lot of people in a group, you get group think, right? So even if some individuals wouldn't necessarily respond to a particular thing or not, they'll think more like the group and then you think you're doing the right thing, right? But I would say that I have had just as many male athletes as female athletes that respond to particular types of feedback or motivation are intrinsically versus extrinsically motivated as anything. And, um, and I think most athletes really appreciate you just asking them really basic questions about them. Um, and not necessarily making the assumption based on their gender. So the assumption is the the devil of all things. And so I think we can understand that there may be different approaches, but um, realize that your approach is never going to work for every single member of that team. Um, and I think if you work with male sports, you know that. Um, an approach works for a lot of the team, but there'll be individual athletes that you slightly uh, adjust your approach for. There's no difference to, to the female teams or the female athlete as far as that goes. And I think as um, it becomes more acceptable for athletes to really express who they are without kind of the perception that they should fall under a certain umbrella, that you'll actually see more 
diversity on the teams as far as how they like to be motivated and, and what they perceive as how someone should be coached. And that'll make it more challenging, but it also make them a lot more realistic in what life is really like in that um, I think each one of our little uh, athletes, they're their own beast and they're an intricate uh, mix of lots of different characteristics and preferences and, and like, um, and motivation types. And, and it, it, that's our, our biggest challenge as a coach is to just treat each person as, as they, they like to be treated and they prefer to be motivated and not to take too much for granted as far as thinking you know something about that athlete because they happen to be a male or female athlete. The best athletes I know, independent of gender, they all have these similar tenacious, really just grit-worthy uh, characteristics. And um, that's characteristic of success, not not necessarily their gender, I think. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I want to ask, and I've, I've had a little chat to with a couple of other people about this, is is there actually is there is there more female coaches getting into strength and conditioning? Is where are you seeing that? Are you seeing more girls come in, or is there still a difficulty for female coaches to get decent jobs? And I know this is <laughs> probably another cringeworthy loaded question, um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Listen, you were making me feel like you're talking to Brian Garrity. And I'm a social scientist here, but uh, um, I'm just interested to see. Like, I don't see loads of female coaches, and I'm just wondering if that's just because I'm I'm not seeking them, or they're just not in like the jobs that get a lot of publicity, or you know, I'm just looking at that kind of not elite level, but kind of ground level. Is there female coaches wanting to get into strength and conditioning? I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I can definitely tell you there's more than there were. Yeah. Um, um, I can say that from a fact, um, at, uh, ASCA, Australian Strength Conditioning Association, we've been tracking with our members through the years, um, of female coaches and it, it is definitely, um, increased. And at our national conference, for instance, um, you know, we had about 350 delegates, 55 of which were female. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good indicator of the representation of female coaches, um, so it sits in and around, uh, for us, probably between 15 and 20% thereof of coaches or females. When you get to the higher levels, it declines. So the number of female coaches at the elite level is lower. Um, the number of female coaches probably dealing with youth is higher. Um, and that's why it, it ends up at like uh, that 15 to 20%. It's probably about 10% at the elite, maybe like 25, 27% doing junior coaching. And that averages out for a 20. I, I know there's more entering it, but I see more of them than sidestep into other areas sometimes. So be that teaching, be that more going into the sports scientists. I see a lot more women in sports science um, than I do necessarily as strength conditioning coaches. And I can't put my finger on it why, but I can say that uh, as an athlete, I had all male strength coaches. Um, and I happened to have female, in, in my collegiate days, I had female head coaches but a majority of head coaches and strength coaches in the collegiate and high-performance environment are male, 
And at that point, when you're trying to decide athlete transition into your career, it does make a difference sometimes to have those um, role models. Um, And so it'll just take a little bit of time before there's more people that are visible and that visibility changes people's perceptions about what the next step in their career can be, things like that. So I think that's why right now is just the visibility is low. And you're right, there's not a lot, but there's more than there used to be. So I don't know what that says about what it used to be like. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. And so, yeah, apologies for that. Uh, three, I think three awkward questions there, but we're, I think we're, uh, we got past it. We moved past it. But um, yeah, so what, what's coming up in the future for you? Future. What's, what's the, what's, yes, what's the next steps for you? So you, we talked about before, uh, like you mentioned, uh, when we're recording a book chapter. A couple of yeah. things in the pipeline. So Advanced Strength and Conditioning, Paul Comfort was um, the editor for that or, or collated a, a bunch of different authors for that. So there's um, a book chapter coming out. And in that one, I think um, – you know, it's an it's it's the next step on from some of the other book chapters that I've had the opportunity to work on. The one from David Joyce's book, um, and then I had a chapter in the NSCA Central's book. But this one, you know, I, I got a little more um, free reign on on just expanding on everything that we're doing, and it it gives some nice um, ideas about that long term development and and really fleshes out like building capacity versus. Um, what, what I think I, I term something like a movement solution diversification. So expanding how many movement solutions you have to improving your, your, your perception and perceptual motor or perception execution and how you just run through that over and over again through your career and how you manipulate. I think in this one, it'll be more interesting because it, it won't be just the S&C but it'll be the SNC and practice planning. So we do talk about the practice environment and and how you how and when and why you decide to have closed versus open drills and when you should have it just prescribed versus setting constraints or having tasks or when you leave it really open like the small sided games and how one might make those decisions and move on and, and split the percentages of time spent through those. So I think that'll help a lot of people on the ground because I think you've been getting lots of information about all this great stuff. It's like, hey, do task constraint and hey, but don't forget, you always got to squat and then, hey, (laughs) but over here, like you need to be doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's just like so much information coming to the practitioner that um, I'm hoping this like takes from testing all the way down to programming on the day as well as the long-term, what it can kind of look like. Um, and then maybe from there, we'll just, you know, keep moving on. Uh, that's me as a practical person. Um, I'm doing a lot of training at the moment um, with athletes, uh, working with a couple teams. And so that's keeping me busy, which actually means that I'm not um, doing as much of my own research, but I do have a couple of research students that are working, as I've said before. I think the area we're going through now is what I was talking about before is we're really excited to start doing some movement classification and um, understanding not just this blanket mean-based analysis that these people run faster than these people, but it's about how people are actually doing their performance, not just how, not what they perform, like what's their time, but how are they going about that performance? 
because it has implications for training. So like I was mentioning, if people are really doing most of the work through the knee, what happens to them if we then give them a lot of posterior chain work and we really increase the strength and resilience of the hamstring gastroc complex, glute complex, does that then actually manipulate how they go about it without a specific change in trying to mediate their technique? Or is it that just building that doesn't contribute because of their preferred movement patterns? So that's what we're doing. We're, we're splitting people up into to movement groups. It's a ton of work. It takes a lot of testing. And so we're kind of doing it in cohort with several other researchers collecting at multiple sites. So, you know, the next three to four years, um, we'll be collecting that data and hopefully it'll be, be a really big project coming out. Superb. And where's the best place for people to keep up to date with all the things that you've got going on? Um, um, so my Twitter account at DocSoph. Um, and then soon I will also have a um, website up and running. It's just getting uploaded now. So uh, www.docsof.com. I know I'm original on that. So nice. uh, just Great Google DocSoph over and over again. And hopefully <laughs> something good comes up. <laughs> Superb. Well, thank you for a part two, Sophia. Really appreciate it. And, um, and no doubt we'll, we'll speak soon. That's great. Thanks so much, Rob. Good to talk to you again. Okay. You too. See you later. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to episode 158 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Sophia. Love hearing Sophia speak. Um, again, just to reiterate, I just think how articulate she is in how she explains. Very complex uh, thoughts into simple uh, audio that can be listened to on a podcast so uh, really appreciate Sophia coming on for a part two if you do want to catch part one strengthofscience.com forward slash 38 and that's Sophia's part one from May 2015 so thanks again for tuning in hope to uh, have you again in the future <laughs>